Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Startups in the Studio podcast. In today's episode, I interview Chris Hefley, a co-founder and CEO of LinkedIn. This interview was one of my favorites so far because there are so many important lessons in Chris's story. LinkedIn ended up raising $10.5 million from 106 local investors over a four or so year period before bringing on an additional $15 million from an institutional venture capital firm. In this interview, Chris talks through the process of raising from such a large number of investors, and he gives advice on how to approach these investors, some strategies on raising from angels, how to keep the cap table clean with such a large number of investors, and whether it affected his raise when he was finally ready for institutional investors. I think this story is very important for all of you startups out there, as the the path that Chris took to raise over $20 million is a much more common path for startups in cities outside of the coasts. Hearing his tips will help you consider your path to raising capital as well. Chris also leaves our listeners with some great advice on how to pitch angels now that he himself is an angel investor having uh, since sold his company. Stay tuned to hear all that and more from Chris Heffley, CEO and founder of LinkedIn. Welcome back to the Startups in the Studio podcast. I'm sitting in our high-tech Nashville-based studio with Chris Heffley, the founder and CEO of LeanKit. Chris raised $10.5 million from angels, mostly locally, I believe. We'll hear his story and he'll he'll clarify for us, plus $15 million from VCs, um, all based here in Nashville. And I consider Chris one of the, I guess, godfathers of, of tech entrepreneurship in Nashville, you know, back in 2009 when he started, it was really the beginning of the boom of, of technology really getting into cities like Nashville and outside of those coastal cities like Silicon Valley and New York. So I'm very excited to have Chris with us today and to hear his story. Welcome to our studio. Thanks, Phil. It's great to be here. Um, Chris, why don't we start off a little bit with your background? Where, where did you grow up and did you grow up with that entrepreneurial spirit or was it something that came to you a little later in life? I did. I, uh, I grew up in Middle Tennessee near McMinnville, and I was, from an early age, uh, coming up with different ways to earn money. I had all kinds of odd jobs. Uh, one of my first real entrepreneurial kinds of things was when we moved to Nashville, I got a um, golf ball retriever, and I would go to the nearby golf courses and snag golf balls out of the traps and then sit at the tees and sell them back to golfers, and I was 12 when I was doing that. So... Yeah, I always knew I wanted to start my own business and uh, uh, eventually um, became a software developer, got a degree in computer science, and after about 10 years of doing that, got together with three other guys that I was working with at HCA and decided uh, to start our own company together. We actually had, um, we didn't, we wanted, decided we wanted to get together and start a company before we had an idea of what to do. It was really more of a get the guys together kind of decision at first. How, how did the idea come across? And why don't you uh, fill our listeners in a little bit about what LeanKit does? Sure. So LeanKit um, capitalizes on a trend in the software development world uh, called Agile. And in addition to that, after about 10 years of Agile being a thing in, in the uh, software development world, people started getting much more interested in some of the roots of Lean and Kanban. Kanban is a visual work management method um, that originally comes out of lean manufacturing uh, and got adapted for knowledge work in the agile world by putting basically sticky notes on a wall. And LeanKit is a visual project management system that looks like sticky notes organized on a wall as a project management board. 
And when we first started, um, we uh, got together and said, who's got an idea? And at the time, I was running a development team that had developers in Nashville, the Bahamas, Ukraine, and Italy. And I had a board up on the wall. And every day after our stand-up call, I would get up and move the cards around and take pictures of the board and email them out to everybody. One of the other guys, one of the other four guys, was doing something like that. With He had a science project board that was one of those trifold kinds of things. And he had built a Kanban board on there with sticky notes and he would fold up the science project board and take it with him to his uh, client site and then fold it back up and take it back to the office. So when we got together and said, who's got a product idea, we decided we would try to create an electronic uh, Kanban board, a visual project management system to um, really solve problems that we already had uh, every day at work that we were trying to solve in other ways. When did you feel was the right time to quit the jobs, focus on this full time? Was that a uh, overnight thing, or was that a two-year working process? And what resources were you able to to uh, go after here in Nashville to help you get off the ground? It was a long process. We kept our day jobs for the first two years and uh, did it nights and weekends. We used um, some contractors from overseas that we had worked with in the past. Got to the point after about two years where we were making about ten thousand dollars a month. Uh, in recurring revenue, and uh, we had you know a handful of customers. We had BBC was one of our earliest customers at that point, and we sort of looked at each other and we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we quit our day jobs and do this full time? And that's when uh, we got involved with the National Entrepreneur Center, actually. So in 2011, I found out about the EC uh, through some just local news article, I think. I'm not sure exactly what it was. It was something I just didn't know existed. They had just finished the first Jumpstart Foundry class and just started the second one. And the, uh, the offices are over there where Acne Feed and Seed is now, up above, uh, up above the, on the top floor there. So we were too late to get involved in Jumpstart Foundry, uh, but we got introduced to David First and Michael Burcham and spent basically a summer there, three, three or four months, and went through learning how to um, develop a pitch and start raising money. And we started making our first pitches to local angel investors based on the work we did at the Entrepreneur Center with Michael Burcham, David First, Michael Burcham, and uh, Chris Sloan, and several other people that were, that were really helpful in those early days to help us get to the point where we could start quitting our day jobs. Uh, we did that one at a time over the next four months from about June to October. Uh, we raised about $250,000 to do that from a handful of local angels, and um, we were off to the races and doing it full-time. Yeah, let's come back to the angels in a minute. Um, over the first two years or so, when you were getting the first product built, were you guys just able to build it because you were a bunch of engineers, or was there actually some money that you all had to put in to get to get things moving, or was it just bootstrapped in the early days until you got to the point where you were at the 10,000 MRR and were able to go to investors with some, with some revenue? Right. We were mostly bootstrapping. We had three software developers and one project manager uh, among the co-founders, product to product to focus project manager. And uh, so we uh, we did most of the work ourselves. But we we like I said we we used some contractors. We had individuals overseas that we we did use, and we self funded that. So every so every so often we would basically say, hey, let's all put in another five thousand dollars, and we would try to come up with another five thousand dollars and put it in to pay for that. And we probably put in about $50,000 between the four of us in that first couple of years, um, just little bits at a time as we needed to. Um, so there was bootstrapping until we got to that point um, to where we could uh, basically show that we had uh, good recurring revenue and a good stream of customers coming in and converting. 
So let's talk about that first angel raise, the 250000 because I think from there on, it was just kind of a rolling inflow of, of investors. Uh, it was never like, okay, let's raise the next round, that sort of thing. It, was the, it sounds like maybe the first two fifty was more of like an organized, put-together pitch and, and round. Uh, let's start there. T- tell me a little bit more about that round. How did you get in front of the angels? Um, what, what was the, you know, were you getting kind of those those glass-eyed looks when you were trying to explain your technology to, to uh, some of these people, or were they more sophisticated investors in that first round? The first round was not the, the most sophisticated group of folks we ever talked to, but they weren't completely green either. A lot of them were um, family friends, a typical you know introdu- introduction to somebody who was a family friend who's the kind of person who can write a twenty-five or fifty thousand dollar check, and that person would introduce us to somebody else. And a lot of those people were business owners themselves in different kinds of businesses, so they weren't necessarily professional investors every day in their jobs, but they had some business savvy and they sort of saw some potential in that. And and then other people were you know depending on who introduced us, it would be you know. Uh, you know, sometimes several connections down the line. Some of them were attorneys, some of them were radiologists, some of them were uh, executives at television companies, and they were just uh, a really wide, diverse group of folks. And um, we had good um, coaching on sort of how to tell a good story for investors. That's one of the things that we changed so much from our time to begin at the Entrepreneur Center to the time to actually raise money, is we just had no idea how to tell, how to how to plan the future of the company so that it would be an investable company and it would develop a return and be able to, to have the vision for that and be able to communicate that story to investors so that, um, you know, this is, uh, especially investors that weren't necessarily professional investors all day, every day. Anyway, being able to communicate to them, this is how your investment will, will be applied now and then these are the future opportunities for, for liquidity and how that, how that looks. So, um we, we basically did a, a slightly extended friends and family round for that first 250. That's basically how we met those folks. What was the best advice you got about uh, crafting your pitch to those early investors? You know, when we first met Michael Bertram, we had, we had talked about it. We, we really wanted to build a great company, and we were really focused on building a good company culture, and we wanted to correct some of the problems we experienced ourselves in working for software companies and working in IT departments. And um, We had this attitude of we want to build it to live it, want to build it to live in it, not build it to flip it. That's what we used to say. And Michael Bertram said, well, I can't invest in that. That sounds like a lifestyle business. And, and we all sort of rocked back on our heels and said, okay, well. And then we had to have a conversation internally where one of the guys said, do we still feel that way? Do we want to do this for 15 years? Or do you want to build something and let it have its own momentum? And if it means selling it after three years or seven years or 10 years, then, then that's what we do. And we said, okay, let's do that. And it, it felt like that's the direction we were going to be able to move things. It felt like if we were, if we were, uh, up for that ride, then it was available to us, so we decided we'd go for that. Were all four co-founders on board with that, or was there some tension in the in that conversation? Um, there was all kinds of tension about all kinds of things, but I don't remember that particular conversation <laughs> being particularly dense. <laughs> with four co-founders, there was lots of good and lots of struggle. One of the great things was the dealing with burnout. And when I would feel like I just couldn't do it anymore and had to push away from the keyboard and just couldn't couldn't finish anymore. I would still see the emails coming in from the other guys checking in code 
and the other emails going that I was copying on, the other guys working on stuff. So in those early days when it was, you know, so hard that there were times I thought I might have given up, having co-founders was really good to be able to keep things going. But with anybody that closely, you work that closely for that long, you're going to have conflict. And so we, we learned to deal with it. We had plenty of it. And, uh, yeah, it was good. And the outcome was it was good in the end. Absolutely. So, uh, so you raised the 250000 from how many investors? 106 is, no, I'm sorry, that's the total. Um, the first round was about eight or nine. I mean, I think that there was one $50,000 check in that first group. Most of them were 25s or 15s or 10. And yeah. So, yeah. so we, we go from seven or eight initial investors to 106 mm-hmm. by the time you raise the institutional round. And that's 200 checks because a lot of the 106 put in more than once. Yeah, wow. So uh, let's let's um, maybe start the narrative. Sure. How, you went from two hundred fifty thousand. What were your thoughts like? The two hundred fifty thousand is going to get us to this milestone. Then we're going to go raise more, or it was just like, let's uh, throw the two hundred fifty thousand, put it to work, and see where that gets us, and then just keep talking to investors as they come up. Or was it more organized around the capital raise? We kind of had a, a framework that we thought that we would raise two fifty, and then our next raise would be with an institutional investor for one point one to three million. And at that point, we would uh, shift from angels to institutional. And that didn't happen. We did talk to a lot of institutional investors, and we did get some opportunities there. We didn't get good terms, uh, what we thought were good terms. So we decided we would turn around and see if we could raise another 500. And it went back to the same people, asked them to introduce us to more people. And over the next you know, two or three more months of, of that kind of canvassing and you know, having lots of meetings and pitches with lots of individuals, we were able to raise another 500. You know, from that point on, it wasn't exactly a rolling raise all the time. There were like sort of mom- there was sort of lulls, and then where we'd have a conversation like, okay, let's see if we can raise another 1.5. And then we'd go back to the group and say, we're going to try and raise another 1.5, and some of them would put in more, and some of them would introduce just more people. And each time we did that, we had good progress to report. We had good you know, numbers to show. Rarely were we as good as our predictions. Um, we were really bad at predictions for a long time um, until you know, really close to you know, nearly, the end, nearly the end in terms of when we, when we sold the company. We didn't get that very good at it until close to the end. But <clears throat> we, uh, we had good, good history and good stories to tell and good, good, good results to show. So it wasn't hard to get more people interested in the story and more people interested in, in investing. And we so went back for 500, went back for 1.5, decided, hey, do you think we could raise three this way? So we raised three. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how many uh, versions of that there were, but it really ended up being, like you mentioned before, almost a rolling raise for about three years. Um, every every few months for about three years the intensity of that would kick up for a little while and then, and then fade but it was it was constantly going and we eventually hired a guy who was doing that for us full-time one of the guys who had introduced us to some of the earliest investors uh, called me one day um, and this is the second time this had happened in the lean kit story and surprised me by saying hey i'd like to quit my job change my career and come work for lean kit and and this guy was a, a, a financial planner or a cfp and he basically decided he wanted to do something different, and he saw what he wanted to do with LinkIt, and he came on, worked full-time, raising money for us until we were done with that business, and then he moved into business development and new market development. 
Uh, so he was very instrumental in making that possible. As the startup CEO uh, chasing down 106 investors, I'm not sure I would recommend that as a path for anybody else to try on purpose. We didn't, it didn't happen on purpose for us. It just sort of evolved, and I had a lot of help. And I think that's a common story for entrepreneurs who are outside of these coastal capital centers. They don't necessarily have access to these VCs that are willing to, to invest in whatever stage they might be in. In Nashville, if you're not a million in ARR and or in healthcare, it's hard to find those institutional investors. So I think that that's uh, what's relevant, I think, to the people listening to this podcast is hearing more about that story. So uh, along this path over three years, you end up with 106 investors. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs who, are, who might have to pursue that path, who don't have access to VCs and need to be thinking, well, how do I get angel investors and how do I get 106 people to buy into our vision here? I remember reading early on um, one of Guy Kawasaki's books and he talked about how you won't be any good at your pitch, pitch until you've given it 100 times. I kind of scoffed at that at the time, being naive and, and thinking 100 times, that's ridiculous. I'll give it 10 times and then somebody will fund it and it'll be fine. He was totally right. hundred's probably not enough. And I got to the point where I just told the story so many times. And I would say, I would say, get your, have a constantly evolving pitch deck that tells the story that you're always uh, ready to tell, um, that you, you know, find those first handful of investors and just keep asking them to introduce you to more. Um, we did a thing that was really good. That was the quarterly investor update. And we had a, we would invite all of our investors to the office, which was part of, you know, we had a cool office that was part of the mystique of the whole thing as being involved in this cool tech company. And we would have an update and we would give basically sort of like a board update uh, on the progress of the company. And we had different executives get up and talk and so people could see what they'd invested in and see the team. And then we would also invite potential investors to those meetings. So very open kimono you know, if you were here because you were invited by another investor, this is before you could publicly post anything about these kinds of things, before the Jobs Act and all that stuff. That worked really well as a way of getting people excited about getting on board with something. And I think that's what we found about at least a lot of angel investors that are dabbling in it at that level, at the $10,000 to $50,000 check. If you can be, if you can responsibly, there certainly... You want to be responsible and ethical and tell, you know, tell the truth and all of this. But you need to be, if you can tell the story about um, having a plan that's investable and be able to tell that story really well because you've told it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, eventually there's lots of people that can write $25,000 checks. And so to some extent, it's just how persistent are you going to be in telling that story all over town? So that's a, a great idea, and uh, I think a good takeaway is that, you know every quarter you would do in these were in person live investor updates, and you said hey bring a friend and and let other people come and and so you weren't even necessarily having to go out of your way to do a pitch you were just doing what you had to do anyway which is keep your investors posted and I I think a theme in the past with some other guests is it's very important when you have 100 investors to make sure that they are kept informed or else you're going to get 100 emails a week uh, checking in. Yeah. Um, along, this, along this path, how important was, were like fundamentals and, and was it more the vision or was the, was the company just growing like crazy and, and you kind of had a good story to tell in terms of what the, the growth was looking like and the fundamentals of the business? We always had a good story looking back at our progress. 
we would occasionally try to predict what we were going to do in the future, and we were always way off the mark. But uh, whenever we never had to explain a lull or a dip or any of that kind of stuff to our investors. So we got really lucky there. I think that's not a luxury that often we may not be able to reproduce in the future. But fundamentally, the business, I think we did a pretty good job of understanding how the business model works and being able to communicate that to people. Um, software as a service, subscription-based business model has a lot of, uh, it's not too hard to understand, and there's a lot of really exciting parts of it once you can explain it to somebody. That was definitely part of it. We always had good historical results to look back on. We were never very good at predicting at what we were going to do, so we would make predictions, and then just at our next at our next uh, update, we would not ever go back and look at our previous predictions. We would just look at previous results and show where things had been and how far they were off predictions was never part of the story. Yeah. But we started admitting uh, at some point we were really bad at predicting. But but all along we were telling a good, good story about the results and we were very fortunate that we didn't have to explain away any bad results during that period of time either because that would have been difficult. In the early days you mentioned you did start reaching out to VCs and when you started the capital raise side, did you think, it sounds like your thought was, we'll raise this friends and family round or a seed round, and then we'll go out and get institutional money. When that didn't play out, you, you pivoted, I guess, in your fundraise plan and kept going. What was, what was the, the issue, I think, on the institutional side in the early days? Because eventually you got institutional capital. But in the early days, what were those conversations with VCs like? Was it, was it that you weren't based in Silicon Valley or New York? Was that part of the problem? We got, we got lots of different versions of, of no, <laughs> but uh, from the Nashville folks, there was not particularly, they didn't particularly understand or weren't particularly excited about the idea of enterprise software that wasn't healthcare, that wasn't a, 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 a particular investment quadrant that they were, in, they were very knowledgeable about. And so... We also did, we didn't feel like we got good valuations when we talked to people in Nashville. We thought that, but we went to the coasts, and we got definitely some people that were. Do you live here in Silicon Valley? No. Well, I'll give you some free advice, but don't come back until you live here. Um, same kind of thing. We got the same kind of thing from Boston. We got one guy who said, "I'd be interested if you'd all move to Boston," and we were all married and had kids, and just it wasn't wasn't going to happen. But we got lots of great advice from the VCs that we talked to up and down the coast. That was something that um, I've been, I was really impressed with at the time that I could get an appointment and get an hour and a half of free advice, even though there was a soft no at the end of it. Um, I always recommend that now to people that are getting started is go share your idea with VCs and get them to tell you which parts of it they think are stupid and they'll tell you. And just the, 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 the process of going through that, they see lots of deals, they see lots of uh, fatal flaws in pitches. Let them look for those in yours and let them tell you what they see. One guy in particular in Boston, that uh, the other guy, apparently the other VCs in town call him the professor. He likes to talk, and he is so good at software as a service, subscription model, revenue model stuff. And that guy, he told us he wouldn't invest in us unless we moved to Boston. But I went back and saw him twice more just so I could get that hour of free consulting. Because if, if, if he was going to see me, I was going to sit there and listen to him talk. With the VCs, uh, 
a lot of times, especially as you start getting momentum and you're getting some PR, you'll get a lot of inbound calls from VCs. Was, was any of that inbound, or were you actively seeking and calling on VCs yourself? Uh, it did become inbound eventually. We eventually got a um, uh, lots of interest from people that were just having junior associates do research and would find Milk Caps's article about some raise and and and, and start a lead and. Eventually, got, we had somebody at one point helped introduce us to people at VCs, and from that process, I mostly learned you don't need anybody to do that. It's it's uh, it's easy to get an appointment with some junior person at a VC, and uh, if you have anything, uh, if, if it's not that hard to get past the gatekeeper at a VC either, if you're going to get past them. So I just I nowadays I tell people just just go through the front door. Don't need to find anybody to take you through the side door to get into. VCs. Just go through the front door and tell your, tell your pitch. And when you get past the gate, gatekeeper, great. If not, often the gatekeeper, the junior associate, has good advice too because they see a lot of deals and they ask a lot of good questions. So. And, and they know what the senior partners are investing in. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, with 106 investors, what, what was it like having that many investors? Where, was it helpful in a sense that you had a large group of people who were on board helping you. Was it a pain? Was it too much to handle? Uh, what, what thoughts do you have for entrepreneurs who are out there saying, like, I don't even want to think about having 106 investors? Was it really that bad? Hmm. Well, Kemp Maxwell, uh, my, my guy who um, joined the company and helped us raise money and, and did so much, he handled most of the difficult part of communicating with 106 people. Uh, he, he was a buffer for me and he you know there were definitely times and I, I needed to interact with investors and stuff but the difficult parts of that were handled by another person and I'm very thankful for that and I would make sure that you know if you if you're considering getting that many investors realize that my story involves somebody else being able to do that for us so um, and he did a great job um, um, for the most part though the communication that I did uh, was the informal monthly uh, email I think people were less interested, even at that, you know, even large number like that, less interested in lots of hard numbers like a, a formal board presentation and more interested in stories. So I would make sure I would tell a customer story or tell about a particular new customer that we just landed or just expanded or um, something, somebody new that we hired. I, I, the, the, the updates were more of a like a newsletter from the CEO kind of update than they were a hardcore investor financial update package with the quarterly updates being a little bit different being a little more uh, numbers focused it was great having that pool of people because a lot of those people were also um, qualified as advisors and we had an advisory board that was an informal not a board of directors board, but we had an advisory board with 18 people on it um, that I basically signed up each individual person um, tried different ways of managing that tried to have a group meeting and tried to have like small groups within that, eventually decided that the best thing was just for me to interact individually with each person occasionally. And sometimes I wouldn't have much interaction with somebody on that list for, for six months, and then they would pop up and be useful for something. Um, sometimes it was introduced us to more investors. Other times um, somebody on that list ended up hiring them. We ended up hiring Tim Mulrun. Uh, I put him on the advisory board early on before I hired him as a contractor and before I had him as an employee and before he eventually became co-CEO after I left. When we talked about the deal term structures that you put in place with having 106 investors, I think that's going to be a great thing for our audience to hear. Um, entrepreneurs here, one of the downsides of having so many investors is dirty cap table. 
Now, dirty cap table, I used to think it's just a lot of investors, but in reality, it's a lot of investors with a lot of different terms. Mm -hmm. What you did, I thought, was a great idea. You had everybody, all 106 investors were on the same terms. Now, when the, the price they paid for the share stock, the valuation was higher each round, but they all had the exact same terms. And if an investor came in and said, well, I want this term, you added it for everybody. So uh, talk about that process and um, who gave you that idea? Was it lawyers or did you? was it just you did it that way and it just worked out? Or? We brought the, originally got the idea for doing a convertible debt from uh, Chris Sloan at the EC during one of our advisor meetings. And that's how we did our first set of, of documents with the first group of investors. We eventually ended up converting that and then doing regular equity after that. But we knew, we, I had read a book uh, called Term Sheets and Valuations. Fantastic creative title. It took me six months to read it. Uh, it was just dry as, dry as you can imagine. Uh, but I learned a lot about terms and um, covenants and things. And it was a neat book because it had term sheets written in like a three-column kind of thing where there was a, an investor-friendly version and a company-friendly version and sort of an in-between version. And so every clause that you saw, you could got to the sense of, okay, this is the most draconian way you could write it and this is the loosest way you could write it and then here's sort of a compromise. That was really useful anytime I saw terms and anytime an investor wanted to push a particular term my direction and be able to say, and, and with the attitude of, oh, this is just standard, everybody does this, I had a lot of, of like, oh, I don't know, I know there's more than one way to do this. And so I just was really cautious about taking on lots of um, different uh, terms. So we set up the first round of that as everybody's represented by one investor on, voted on the board by the, that whole group. We kept our valuation throughout the time around 5.5x our uh, recurring annual revenue, uh, which at the time was sort of a middle-of-the-road multiple, um, what we thought we saw in the market was what was out there. So not, not super low, but certainly not hyped up 10x kind of stuff that you'd see in, in a uh, West Coast kind of deal. And so, yeah, we ended up with a really long but not complicated cap table. There were a couple of times where somebody asked for a particular term that we thought was uh, reasonable enough that we added it to the whole group retroactively. But for the most part, we were able to just say, here's the paper, this is it. And, and, and the fact that there were 106 people and there was the momentum of the company going, I think some of that also... It doesn't hurt to know that there's already, you know, if you're coming in an investor number 85 of 106, it doesn't hurt to know that 85 people have already signed this. It sort of um, makes people feel a little bit more comfortable there, too. Yeah, so there's some upside to having that many people, especially as you are, you know, the wheels start spinning. Once you get to a certain number, everybody gets more comfortable with it. Right. So now you're thinking, okay, you, you've raised $10.5 million over three years, and you're like, it's time for institutional money. So now it's time to go talk to VCs. Uh, tell me about that process. How did you first start the conversations with the VCs? Were these the conversations you talked about earlier that you were you had been building over time? And how did they see 106 investors? And what was what was uh, the in the end the way you got a, a firm eventually insight to invest in your company? We were all, we we were we definitely were working the relationships that we had been working for a while. One of the term sheets that we got um, was from somebody that we had talked to three years before, I think, and, and had been talking to for a long time. 
Um, but Insight was actually a new introduction. So we started making the rounds and talking to people that we knew, but we also took some new meetings and got um, an inbound interest from Insight, um, partly generated because of the fact that they had a portfolio company that eventually bought Ninkit. Uh, and I think you know, their interest, I think, was also piqued by that. Uh, they sort of had a, a, hey, here's this cool company, Plan Plan A, let's, let's, make, let's make it really successful. Plan B, we'll buy it. And uh, I think that was um, eventually what happened. Yeah, they, they, they were a new one. And we got different reactions from people when they, thought, when they heard about the 106 investors. Most of the time it was the, ooh, 106, that sounds like a dirty cap table. And then I explained, well, we're basically all the same. And it's, it's oh, and then we kind of got the shrug like, okay, it's weird, but it doesn't look like a big deal. Um, so we got initial, initial uh, apprehension and then... Once they saw that it wasn't too complicated, we didn't get too much pushback from it. So can we say here that we're debunking the myth that having a lot of investors on your cap table is, is harmful in a, in a raise? Or um, were there some VCs that pushed back and said it is going to be an issue for them? There's only one that we got into serious conversation with out of Atlanta that wanted to look at doing something like a LLC to pull all those together into one name. Nobody else... Um, once they saw the reality of there's not a whole bunch of different terms and not a whole bunch of different things to deal with, and nobody else uh, balked at it. So. so let's talk about the process. Um, how many VCs did you did you pitch? Was it East Coast, West Coast, and what were the conversations like? And how did you eventually end up um, deciding on which firm you were going to go with? And then how did they decide that they were going to, mm-hmm. or I guess how many of the firms had decided that they were interested in investing? We did both East and West Coast. Uh, we got more traction on the East Coast. Uh, we did. We made trips to to Silicon Valley and probably saw ten out there. Um, got more of the if you don't live here, we're not interested out there than we got anywhere else. We visited VCs in Atlanta, Philadelphia, DC, New York, Boston. That might be it. Maybe Austin. We didn't go to Austin. We just had phone calls. But anyway, we, we went all up and down the East Coast. Um, we ended up narrowing it down to about five, um, two of which we got term sheets from, actual term sheets. One of those we'd been talking to for years and one of those we hadn't. The, the, the term sheet that we got that we didn't take was a very traditional VC term sheet from a 100-year-old VC firm. They had all kinds of they, they had stuff in there like all the founders will have to revest 50% of their equity which to them was a good term because a lot of times it's 100%. There was some multiples and some preference and multiples in there. There were several several of the terms and covenants that you sort of expect to see in a real hardcore VC term sheet. The other one I got from Insight, <clears throat> I called them after, afterwards and I said, okay, is this the real term sheet or is there another one behind it? I mean, because I got this other term sheet, and it's got all these details. Yours doesn't have any of these details. And if I sign this one, are you going to send me another one that has all these details? And he said, no, because we took a look at our data. And they said, of all of those terms that we've ever used in the past and all the stuff we could could find, we never actually saw much case of that taking a bad deal and making it good or taking a good deal and making it bad. It didn't seem to affect the the outcome or anything enough to matter. And so we decided just not to do those things. 
and it turned out to be a competitive advantage. And it turned and and they were absolutely right because the financial terms to the two term sheets were fairly similar. And the one we didn't take is the one that had name recognition. And they had, you know, hundred year old firm, big name, and but the terms is what is what uh, the, and the lack of the draconian VC terms is what uh, moved us toward things like. So now you've got institutional capital. Things change. You know, the, the pressure mounts up, the, the pressure to grow. What was the experience like after you raised the money? We hired really fast. Uh, we grew from, we probably hired 75 people in a year. Uh, and we crossed that 100-person threshold. Just like it happened when we crossed about a 25 or 30-person threshold, it felt like everything stopped working. Everything organizationally, operationally got really hard, and it, we got, it got hard for us to get anything done. And we struggled there for a little while as part of that growth to both incorporate new folks into the company and be able to figure out how to, how to make things work again. And I've seen that now several times in companies that cross that 90, 100 person kind of threshold that the things that we used to do to get here don't work anymore. And we have to figure out new ways to communicate, new ways to make decisions, and new ways to, to, new, new, uh, new ways to do things. And I think if I had a, that part to do over again, I might pause a little bit and you know, get, to 100, get to 100 people or thereabouts and then call a three or four month halt to, to all this breakneck hiring uh, and try and, and, and straighten things out. But eventually, you know, we the, without the benefit of that, eventually things got smoothed out, got, got things going again. But we also bought another company right after that. So we had been talking about for years, had a great deal of respect for uh, the folks at Firefly Logic, which is a boutique consulting firm, boutique software development firm here in town. And we had worked with those folks, the, the founders at Firefly, we'd worked with them at HCA around the same time that we all worked together before LinkIt. And they went off and started their consulting company. In fact, one of the co-founders of LinkIt, when he left HCA, went to work for Firefly and then eventually left his job at Firefly when we all quit our day jobs at LinkIt. So we had a real tight relationship and we'd been daydreaming about just buying Firefly and adding all those folks to our team. Anytime John got two or three beers in him, he would talk about, hey, let's buy Firefly when we get some money. Um, and when we got some money, we turned around and started talking to him about it and did it. And then we actually pulled in 12 people from their team onto that. And that was a great experience. It was great, great to be able to bring that group. It reminded me of getting started again because right at the very beginning, when we first started being able to hire people, one of the coolest things was going back and being able to hire the people that you used to work with, you always wanted to work with again. This kind of felt like getting able to go out and do that all at once. I'm like, hey, we always wanted to bring these people into the family, and so it was it was neat to be able to do that. When did your responsibility change? Because you, you started off, you were all coding. At what point did you, or if at all, did you make the transition to you know, CEO where you had to focus on a lot of other things? It happened almost as soon as we started raising money. And almost immediately when we started raising money that um, we started to try to make the transition. And I went from being... You know, the developer and had you know hand to, to, to having to hand that off. And the first six months of that was was difficult transition and, and for me uh, figuring out what my job was. And I think from then on, it felt like I had to completely figure out my job again about every three months because it would change dramatically with the stage of the company it was in and the size of the company. And yeah, it was it was very difficult to maintain staying in the code once we started raising money.
So what, what happened after the investment came in, you're, you're growing the company, and then there was an exit. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit more about the exit and the process to get there? Sure. Um, so there's a little bit, you know, some, some, some time passes in between those, and we continue to grow. Um, we had um, hit a little bit of a, a, of a lull and sort of had to try to figure out how to, how to um, our, our, we weren't growing as fast as we were anymore. Um, so there was a bit of a plateau in the growth rate, so we had to figure that out again. Um, I ended up leaving the company at that point. for I started for health reasons. I ended up hurting my back and having to take some time off. And while I took some time off, decided I was going to go ahead and step back and, uh, and let others take, take, take it forward and needed to focus on family stuff. So that happened right about a year before the company uh, was acquired. So I was involved as a board member that final year, and um, we had gotten into manufacturing engineering in a big way. That was one of our biggest uh, strategic moves uh, at that point is realizing that we had a market outside of IT and software development, uh, selling to manufacturing engineering, especially people like Bosch and Siemens and Rolls-Royce and Jaguar Land Rover, some of our biggest European customers were all in that. So that combined with us sort of in a little, little bit of a lull, we got to the point where we had to decide, are we gonna raise more money? Uh, or are we going to look for an acquisition at this point? The decision was raise more money, lose control of the company uh, at that point, because up to then, even with all the money we had raised, the founders had maintained control of the company. So if we raised more money at that point, though, we were going to lose control um, and continue doing it for, for a few more years. And so Insight uh, had a portfolio company that was interested in LeanKit called PlanView. PlanView is one of the top five project management vendors in the country. Uh, of, the other, of the five, it's the one most people haven't heard of. The others are IBM and Microsoft and Computer Associates and people like that. But they're really big in manufacturing. They're really big in finance. And they did not have a good offering in the lean agile world. And so Insight, our, our investor, put together the marriage of LeanKit and PlanView. And we got a great deal. Um, it was a, you know, fantastic terms and decided that it was a good, a good home for LeanKit to end up as a product line for PlanView. And, and that happened in 2017. And um, it's been a big success. I think um, the team is certainly smaller. It, it shrank immediately and then people drifted away as they sort of, the ones that didn't want, the ones that wanted to still work for a startup and not a big company. And a few of them moved to Austin. But uh, my understanding is that it's a very profitable product line and is doing really well inside the company. And um, one of the four co-founders stayed and is a executive at PlanView and travels around the world now talking about Agile and Lean and Kanban and LeanKit. So. I think uh, a lot of entrepreneurs get to the point, especially as they grow and raise money, and they think, is it time for me to step aside and let somebody else come on? It sounds like there were some outside factors at play, but were you were you kind of thinking along those lines after you raised the money that maybe after a year or so it was time to maybe bring somebody else in? Was that a hard decision, or were you uh, like seeing that that was the best way to move LinkedIn forward, or were you even just ready to move on? I certainly couldn't see it at the time. Looking back on it now, I can see that coming. Um, I talked to another entrepreneur at the time about my decision, and he, local guy here who's started many businesses, and he told me basically his philosophy was he said, I'm the zero to 25 guy. We had 25 employees. I know that I'm not the guy anymore, and I got to look for my replacement. And he's done this eight, nine times now, been the zero to 25 guy. He said, maybe you're the zero to 100 guy. Maybe that's it for you. Maybe that's maybe that's where you hit your, your limit. And now I think if I was in this position again, I would be looking for that uh, now. I think first time, 
it was my baby and dream and destiny and all this stuff. It would have been difficult for me to have seen that. As an experienced entrepreneur who's been through it once now, that's the place. I would be looking for that spot now. Okay, where is the time where I need to step aside and, and find the right thing? And, and uh, zero to 100 may feel like about right for me. I mean, just from here, I mean, I'll, I'll keep my, you know, when the time comes, I'll have my eyes open all the way up to my name. But I think, um, yeah. I think that's something I would, I would be keeping my eyes open for in the next time. Such a smart thing to think about. What are your strengths and, and what, what are you good at building? Um, and, and having that maturity and uh, foresight, I think, is, is something that entrepreneurs should definitely be thinking about. So you have the exit. You start doing um, a little angel investing. So let's put your angel hat on for a, for a minute. What are some things now that, that you've, you've been through this, you've learned a lot of the lessons that you look for when you go out and, and seek out opportunities to invest? So I, my personal, and this is just sort of a rule of thumb, is this, if, if, I'm, if I don't know enough about it to feel like I can be helpful to the entrepreneur if I have lunch with them every month and, and have, they have answer questions for them, then I try to stay away from investing in it myself because I probably don't know enough about it to invest in it either. Um, and so things that are other software companies, software as a service kinds of things, I've, I've sort of start, tried to keep my own uh, investor lens on things that I know enough about to be helpful. And there have been other things that are interesting that I've seen come through that are a little bit exciting, but I go, I just don't know enough about the grocery business or the real estate business or the whatever to know whether or not this is, this is good. And so... Um, I'll you know try and be helpful. I've been doing some work as a mentor advisor at the Entrepreneur Center and try to, to offer you know what stories and advice I can for those. But as far as what to invest in, I try to keep it uh, fairly narrowly defined to something the things that I understand as a as a, operationally. If I understand it well enough to invest in it, uh, then 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 well. So most of the things I've invested have been other software as a service, subscription based kind of businesses. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are looking to pitch uh, angel investors? Uh, what kinds of things do you look for? Else, like, let's say you find something that meets your criteria. What other factors are coming into play in your decision? Um, it has to be uh, an investable story. So I have to see they have. There's, there's got to be enough of a plan or a vision or a market opportunity for it to be big enough to be worth raising money for. So is, is this... Um, I want to be sure that I'm not raising for a lifestyle business or something that, that, that is going to um, never have any liquidity. Are they raising enough money to get there is another question. So is it investable? Is it big enough to be investable? Are you raising enough money to, to get where you're going? Somebody who comes along and says, I'm only raising 150000 and that's going to get me nine months. And no, it isn't. <laughs> I mean, you know, most underfunded uh, startups... So raising too little money puts you in a position of having to raise money again too soon and not having good enough results to show. And so if you've got good enough results to raise money now, raise, lean towards raising more money now if you can, rather than worrying about equity that you're giving up. Uh, because if you have to raise money later at a lower valuation, you're giving up a lot more equity. In closing, what are maybe some final thoughts, words of wisdom that you can pass on to all these entrepreneurs out there who are in in cities like Nashville that have growing tech scenes, but not maybe the, the uh, mature investor networks yet? What advice do you have for them as they go out there and grow their businesses? Persistence is uh, 
the one quality that matters more than anything else is being able to get used to hearing lots of no's, hard no's and soft no's, and just keep telling the story and learning from it every time. Um, travel to these other places where there are better networks of investors, meet those folks, talk to those folks, come back, bring those conversations, tell people locally what you heard in those conversations. That's one of the things that we would do, you know, when I went to Boston and heard a particular set of advice from a, a VC firm with a big name, I would come back and tell that story. This is the folks at Bessemer told me to do this. And the local investor would go, okay, that sounds like good advice. But it's part of um, sort of bringing the, the ecosystem of investor savvy, I don't know, just being, going out from where you are, see, talk, talking to those people and coming back and bringing those stories, I think is good for you and good for the community. So... Just be persistent, keep telling the story, keep refining the telling of the story, and eventually, you know, little by little, you, you, sometimes you'll get one investor who'll introduce you to five more all of a sudden, and that happened to us several times where it feels like you're slogging through the mud and you just can't get anywhere, and all of a sudden it just sort of pops open for you. So, so uh, you know, hearing the stories from, in, like, these professional investors, in a sense, from other cities and bringing those stories back to tell those to local investors in your community is something that, that mm-hmm. worked for you. And, um, you know, persistence and, um, and yeah, I, I think it goes like that with any any role in, in life. It's like things seem to go really slow for a little bit and then all, you know, when it rains and pours, it all kinds of come, come, kind of comes at once. You hear um, about people being an overnight success after 10 years of, of playing clubs on the road, kind of thing. That's exactly right. It's overnight success over 10 years. I think that's an important message to get across. So, uh, thank you so much, Chris Heffley. Uh, we really appreciate it, and uh, thanks again for coming in. Thanks, for. Thank you again for listening to the latest episode of Startups in the Studio. If you'd like to dig in deeper into this episode or other episodes, you can visit our website, startupsinthestudio.com to find show notes and links we found to be relevant based on these interviews. Of course, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Give us a high rating and positive review wherever you listen to your podcast. And please feel free to share startups in the studio with anyone you think would enjoy our conversations. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what we can do better, give us some topic or interview ideas, or just send us a note and say hello. You can reach me at phil, P-H-I-L, at startupsinthestudio.com. And I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, take care and go out there and raise some money.